Nothing says resurrection like this little guy right here. This is my boy, Ezra Lyon, and uh, it's his first Easter, so welcome. Hey, my name's Darren. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to be with you guys. I'm so glad you're here. Today, we're here as the garden uh, to celebrate one simple fact, that Jesus lived in human history, he died on the cross, and he's been resurrected from the dead. And I'll pass him back off, because I'm afraid um, he's going to start sucking on my arm. And... Um, Thank you, my love. And this is my beautiful wife, everyone. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we, along with billions of people from all over the world, are celebrating this reality. And it's for this reason that we say he is risen. He is risen you guys, okay, let's try it again. Let's try it again. I don't want to compare you to your 915 brothers and sisters, but I will because they already did this. So he is risen. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. So, um, we're having a party today. That's what we like to call it on Sunday. We worship Jesus. We sing some songs. Uh, we, we have a speaker here today that's uh, at, from, from a different city in California. Um, but I need to let you know of what's happening. If you are new, we're so glad you're here. We're so glad you're joining us on this Easter Sunday. I would love for you to fill out a Connect card. They're in the back on your way out. Uh, take some time, fill out your information, because we want you to know that as a church, it's not just about coming to an event on Sunday. In fact, we believe that as followers of Jesus, we are the church, and we want to live out our faith seven days a week. We want to serve uh, this city and bless the people in this community. We want to bless you. We want you to find family. And if you don't have a church home, or if you don't have people that you call family, well, welcome to the family. We would love to be there for you, okay? So fill out the Connect card. We'll get you plugged in. Um, and that's if you are new. The rest of the gardeners, you saw that we didn't pass the bucket. Um, so instead, we, we uh, hid some giving boxes around the room. And if, uh, it's kind of a task that if you want to give your offerings this Sunday, you're going to have to find one of those giving boxes. I don't know where they are. Um, so that will be your little Easter egg hunt today for the tithe offerings. All right, um, so that's that. Uh, we're going to have a sermon now, and um, I, I invited a friend of mine. His name is Rob Bell, and he is the founding pastor of Mars Hill from Grand Rapids, Michigan. He is the uh, creator, the writer, and the narrator of the NUMA films. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He's got some exciting things coming up in this fall, which I'm not going to share with you today, because what I'm most excited about having him here for is that he's a passionate lover and follower of Jesus Christ. And he's a dear friend of mine. He has influenced my life in so many ways. He's blessed my wife and I on our journey in church planning. And what I've done over the years is just invite friends to come and hopefully uh, become friends with you and bless you. So would you guys uh, welcome Rob as he comes up and we'll pray for him. Thanks for being here. All right. Let's pray for him. Jesus, we thank you for this gathering. We, we gather in, the, in your resurrected name. And we ask that you would bless this time. Bless Rob as he's prepared for us a sermon. I pray that we'd be open to him and the word he has for us. And we give this time to you in your name. Amen. Amen. Hi, everybody. Hi. I've been a big fan of yours. I'm a great admirer of Darren and Alex. So to be here with you today is um, it's a really big deal for me. So um, how many of you know, you know that it's Easter, right? What, you may know where the word Easter comes from? Yeah, exactly. Ooh, nice. You were in the first service. Uh, first service, I said, anybody know where the word Easter, Easter comes from? And a guy was like, dictionary. And I was like, oh my word, there's one of those guys here. Seriously. How are you married? Um, 
Yeah, the word Easter is an English transliteration of the word Ishtar. Ishtar was the ancient Persian goddess of fertility, and the followers of her cult would, um, in the springtime have fertility rites in which they would celebrate eggs and bunnies and rebirth and fertility and such. So when people say, like, oh, man, I'm so excited for Easter, you are fascinating. Um, so I'm just going to say up front, I'm a little less excited this morning about Ishtar and a little more excited about resurrection. Are you with me? So I know a lot of you are like, but wait, like, like the, the cross was brown and the chocolate is brown and the disciples had bunnies and it's all... I'm just messing with you, please. Some of you are like, wait, what? What verse is that? Um, no, it's like pink, because that's in the... Yes, Lord. Your servant listeneth. Uh, so this morning, I want to talk about resurrection. And I want to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Which, uh, in the Bible, is told there are four accounts. And if, you're, if you haven't read the Bible before, there are four accounts of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you have, apparently have been studying the book of Luke. So this morning I want to just ask the question, how does Luke, in the Bible, tell the story of Jesus? And specifically, the resurrection of Jesus, which is where this occasion comes from. Now... Here's how it's written in the Bible. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. By the way, Jesus' male disciples, when he goes into trial and is crucified, they all desert him. The male disciples split out of fear, but the women hang around. The women are there through it all. The men are like, I'm out of here, but the women are fearless and stick around. Just saying. Just saying. Are there any sisters in the house? Yeah. It's own sermon right there. Here we go. I'll let you talk about that in the car ride home. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their... Faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? To which the women responded, Because it's a tomb? Is that a trick question? Uh, So you have these women, they come to the tomb, and Jesus isn't there. They then leave the tomb and rush to tell the male disciples, who are the ones who had sort of jumped ship, and the male disciples, next slide. The male disciples, but they did not believe the women. I'm just saying. Now, by the way, in first century culture, a woman's testimony was not valid in court. They believed that if something happened, it would take a man to give witness to it actually happened. That a woman's testimony wasn't legitimate. So in this first century culture, when Luke tells this story about Jesus, he has as the first primary witnesses women. Now, why does he do this if he's in a culture in which establishing the validity of something wouldn't have happened with the witness of women? Why does he do this? Some say, well, you see, that's not very smart. Or is it how it happened? So he's just telling it 
how it happened. It's either wonderful evidence for why this is all sort of a joke and sort of a myth and sort of a, or it's so sort of human and sort of frail and funky and just it's just kind of unhappening and what's going on here and there happens to be women and so he just tells it like it happened. Now, next slide. Uh, one of the disciples, uh, man, they tell Peter, the caffeinated disciple, and Luke says that Peter was wondering to himself what had happened. Great confusion, bewilderment. Next slide. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, which was several miles from Jerusalem. And so then Luke moves from the women having come from the tomb, racing, telling the men, we don't know where he is. Jesus isn't in the tomb. The men not believing it and being deeply confused and wondering what in the world are they talking about. Luke then shifts the action to two disciples who are leaving Jerusalem where this has happened, and they're heading home to Emmaus. Now, why are they heading home? Well, at some point earlier, they must have encountered Jesus for the first time. Now, most of these disciples were from small Villages. Some of them based around um, fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Many of them agriculture in nature, wine, grain, etc. So most of them were from small villages of 100 to 200 people. And in the story that Luke tells, Jesus comes from town to town announcing God's love and something he called the kingdom of God, this revolutionary new message, healing people and talking to them about what God is like. At some point, apparently, two of these disciples heard Jesus, this healing, mystic, revolutionary who's challenging the whole religious system and saying these rules aren't the point. God's not about it. God is found here. And at some point, two of them, obviously, were like, we're in. We believe him. We're following him. And so they would have left their village and all family, friends, relatives, uncles, aunts, brother-in-laws, they would have left their work and they would have devoted themselves to following Jesus everywhere that he went, from village to village to village to village. They follow him. Um, some of them followed him apparently for three years, and then eventually they make it to Jerusalem where Jesus is executed. So now why are they headed back? Because the guy that they gave their lives to following got killed. And now they have to go back home. So there's all the people that you went to high school with. And out of a whole bunch of them, you were like, I think, he's the, I think he's the Messiah. I think he's the one we've been waiting for. I'm, leaving, I'm dropping my nets, man. I'm going. But there were a bunch of people who were like, mm, nah. And now you've got to go back. And everybody has an annoying brother-in-law. Are you with me? You come back. Hey, how's that working for you? Yeah, dropping your nets. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. You still think Jesus is the one? Yeah, so when they're walking back, they're probably taking their time. Would you agree? Because this is going to be awkward. <laughs> having to face everybody and having to say, yeah, I thought he was the one, but he wasn't. By the way, there were lots and lots of people in the first century who claimed to be messiahs. Lots and lots of people who claimed to be sons of God. Lots of people who healed. Lots of people said they were the one God had sent to save everybody. And then they had a habit of dying like human beings do. And so they happen to choose this one, Jesus from Nazareth. What good can come from Nazareth? And now they're having to head home. Luke says that as they're heading home, Jesus comes and joins them. Next slide. 
but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, that's just Jesus messing with you at that point. (laughs) So they're walking along, they're downcast, they're depressed, they're having to head back to their village and basically say, okay, you're right, we were a little impulsive there, what were you thinking? And so Jesus says, why are you, what are you bummed about? My translation. What are you bummed about? And they begin to tell him, well, we thought Jesus was the one, and he got killed, which sort of ends as a way of ending a movement. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. And then he begins to tell them, he begins to rewind and tell them all of the same events leading up to his death, only he reworks them and says, no, 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 this was all how it was supposed to go. And yet they still don't realize that they're walking with Jesus until they stop for a meal. And then Luke says this. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. So the way Luke tells the story is Jesus rises from the dead, and the men don't believe it, and the women don't know where he is, and they don't recognize it. Nobody recognizes him. In John's gospel, Mary sees him and thinks he's the gardener. I don't know about you, but when I rise from the dead and my friends don't recognize me, it's so frustrating. <laughs> Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, what? Bob? Rick? What? Who are you? That was a joke. It didn't work. <laughs> yeah, the story that Luke tells is about Jesus rising from the dead and no one recognizes him. People don't believe it. They're confused. He walks with them and they still, apparently they've been with him for three years, but now they can't walk a few miles and recognize that it's him until they stop for a meal. They gather around the table and there is something about him breaking the bread and sharing it and giving thanks for it that they realize it's him. Now, it's important to understand that in first century Jewish culture, bread was a really big idea. And bread was central to life. First off, it's an agricultural setting. In the ancient world, they could not go in to a grocery store in the middle of the night under fluorescent lights with a tile floor and buy tomatoes in February. You couldn't do that. In an agricultural society, you only eat if the land produces food. And the land only produces food if you plant, but then the sun shines, rain comes, the earth has to do its part. So over time, ancient people had a very, very visceral connection with the land and had a sense that this food is a gift from God. And so in Jewish culture, when you sat down for a meal, it was a tangible, daily, living, breathing reminder that God gives you the gift of life. So for them, bread was a gift because all of life is a gift. Bread is holy and sacred because all of life is holy and sacred. There even was a phrase, every table is an altar. And so they understood that the center of your religious life was not even necessarily the temple or the synagogue or some sort of religious gathering, but the table in your home, because that is where you gather with the people you love the most. And they put bread on the table, and you're reminded of the God who sustains your life. There were even specific prayers you would say before you had a meal. 
Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, for giving us bread from the earth. And so bread and the breaking of bread was a sacred act. It was basically sitting down with your friends and saying, life is a gift that we share with each other. And bread is a daily tangible reminder that this life matters, that it's a precious, sacred gift, that it all comes from God. And so before we break the bread, we say thank you, God, King of the universe, for giving us this love and giving us this life. Are you with me? Every table and altar. So when Luke tells the story, what does he do? Everything's a bit fuzzy, everything's a bit, huh? Or as the French would say, quoi? Until... They sit down at a table, and he breaks the bread, and they're like, whoa, this is our dude. <laughs> I just thought it. One disciple turns the other, hey, wait, that's our dude. I don't know where I got that. There's this moment of recognition. It's him. It's Jesus. Now, let's be really clear about what a first century Jesus... Jewish rabbi like Jesus would have understood about the world. So first off, when he rises from the dead, the first act is he breaks bread with his followers. First off, this is our home. Earth is our home. Jesus does not come to help you evacuate to somewhere else. Are you with me? He does not rise from the dead and then say, next ship, leaves at noon. He does not say, here's how you can get out of here. He rises from the dead and he sits down with bread that comes from the earth. This world is our home. If you are to trace the story of the Bible, the story of the Bible begins in the book of Genesis here. We live here. The story is about the God who takes up residence here in our midst, in tabernacles, temples, who comes among us in flesh and blood. The book of Revelation ends where? Here. New heaven, new earth. The Bible is a story about this world, about this world that is good. This is our home, and our home is good. The Bible does not begin with sin, destruction, environmental degradation, human trafficking. The Bible begins with the God who makes it and says, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. Man and woman coming together, very good. <laughs> good, good, good. The first word about creation is that it's good. The first word about you is that your body is good. The Bible does not begin with all the ways human beings have found to screw things up and toxify ourselves and the world around us and our relationships. The Bible begins with, and they're created in the image of God. You, funky, frail, flawed, featherless biped that you are, your body is good. And all of those twisted notions religion has handed people over the years about how horrible they are, the first word about you is that you are created in the image of God, you bear the imprint of your maker, and your body, your physicality is first and foremost 
good. Now, you may do destructive things with it. You may harm others. You may live in ways that destroy the peace that God intends for things. But the first word about you, and specifically your physicality, your materiality, your body, is that it's good. The Christian story is not about the God who says, what a mess, let's do something else. It's about the God who comes into the human story, and as the great writer Eugene Peterson says, the divine took on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Are you with me now? Yes, it is a story about the affirmation of art, the affirmation of design, the affirmation of food, sex, beauty, Aesthetics, business, law, medicine, all of the things that we do in this world to work together to make this world the kind of world we all know it can be. Yes. And so true spirituality, authentic spirituality, the kind that Jesus comes to lead us into, is not about how you can get out of this world, but it is about how you can come to see the depth in holiness of who you are and what you do in the world. Are you with me? The action is here. The action is here. The story is about the God who wants to rescue this world, who wants to redeem this world, who wants to repair and restore this world. That's this story. Now, this Jesus who sits at the table breaks the bread, and his disciples post-resurrection go, that's Jesus. Here he is, with us, resurrected. Let's do a quick recap on what has happened to Jesus up to this point. So, if you were to take just Luke's story of Jesus' life, first off, in chapter 4, Luke says that when Jesus gave his first sermon in his hometown, their response to his sermon was they wanted to take him to the edge of a cliff and push him off. Basically, everybody hears his first sermon and says, let's kill him. They did not say, we probably should add a service. (laughs) They said, let's kill him. Which, if you're a preacher, is terribly comforting. (laughs) Unless the whole congregation is trying to kill you, doing okay. (laughs) Yeah, this is how it starts. Next slide. Uh, In chapter 6, the religious leaders are furious, and they begin to discuss what they might do to him after he says some things that don't fit in line. Next slide. In chapter 11, Jesus is healing people and he's casting out of demons. And I've, I've generally observed that the less demons you possess, the better. Would you agree? And yet their uh, yes would be nice there in terms of you agree. <laughs> I don't know. I kinda, this is a story about him. And the accusation to him is, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. To which Jesus has this brilliant sort of thing. Like, you can just picture me like, are you an idiot? Like... If I'm the prince of demons, why would I be trying to get demons out of... Anyway. Next slide. In chapter 11, they begin to oppose him fiercely and besiege him with questions. Notice chapter 13. Luke tells you about how some people come to Jesus and they say, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Now, when you read that line, Herod, it's like, oh, some guy wants Jesus dead. No. These are small peasant villages, 100 or 200 people. Life expectancy was roughly 40 years. You probably only knew 
in the course of your life, you probably only would run into 200 people, maybe 300 people total you'd ever even seen in your life, unless you went to a big city. Many of them stayed very close to these small agricultural and fishing villages. Herod, Herod Antipas, was one of the three sons of Herod the Great, was the ruler of the entire region. A fierce, violent man with a large army. You don't have an army. You have like slingshots and sticks. And some people come and say, Herod, the most powerful man in the region, who rules with an iron fist, is actually trying to kill you. Next slide. A couple chapters later. Chapter 19, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he saw the city and he weeps. Next slide. In chapter 22... One of his good friends, Judas, sells him out for a couple pieces of silver. And when they meet in this garden, Jesus has this epic line. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Anybody here ever been betrayed? Yeah, stabbed in the back. Can't sit down for a while because of the knife. Judas, are you seriously betraying me? Like you're kissing me. Like, is that really what's happening here? Next slide. Then there's this line a little while later, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking him and beating him. Then later in the same section, Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, is asked about Jesus, and Peter's response is, I, I don't know who you're talking about. He's denied. Next slide. Then you have his trial. Then with one voice, there's a large crowd. And when they have Jesus brought before him, they cried together, away with this man. They insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. Next slide. Then Jesus uh, is hanging on a crucifixion stake. One of the criminals hurls insults at him. And then they crucified him, and then he breathes his last. So when you look at the story of Jesus' life that Luke tells you, this is what happens. If you were to recap, uh, people are furious with him. They accuse him. They oppose him. He's besieged. Herod wants to kill you. He weeps. He's betrayed. He's denied by his closest friends. A large crowd shouts away with him, kill him. He's insulted and he's executed. And then he rises from the dead and he sits down at the table and he says, would you guys like some bread? Because when you die and then rise from the dead, you work up a terrific appetite. So this is who's sitting there at the table. So here's how I would say it. Here's who's sitting at the table. If you have experienced the worst that a human being could possibly endure, and you survive it, if you've been beaten, mocked, insulted, spit on, betrayed, at one point his family comes to get him because they think he's lost his mind. In those days, people had conflict within their families. Back then. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. Everything that could go wrong does. He's misunderstood. His own countrymen turn on him. Away with him. Away with him. He's beaten, mocked, insulted. Eventually he's hung in the... Now the Romans, the Romans had tinkered and tweaked with how to cause somebody the greatest amount of harm and yet still keep them alive. Because if you just have like, if you just kill them, well then that doesn't put them in as much agony. But if you put them in 
too much agony, they'll die. So the trick was to put them in the most amount of agony that put them right on the edge of death, but then keep them there. So they, they'd experimented with this for a while, and they'd come up with this thing called an execution stake, which was a way to publicly put somebody in the worst agony possible, but then drag it out for as long as possible. There was one revolution, I think the city of Gamla, that the Romans crucified 2,000 people at one time. So they were like, really? You're not going to submit to the Roman Empire? We have a little stick we would like to nail you to. That's how it worked. So when he is crucified, he's crucified in one of the ways the largest global military superpowers has ever come up with to make someone's life and death miserable was an execution stake. And he goes through that kind of death. And then he rises from the dead and says, would you like some bread? What kind of story... Is Luke telling, if you experience the worst that a human being could possibly endure and you live to tell about it, then you are now a dangerous person. Because what can they do to you now? We might kill you. (laughs) Well, you don't understand, Jesus. People might misunderstand you. (gasps) What would I do then? If the worst thing that could happen to you actually happened to you and you survive, well, then what would be your future problems? That already happened to me. Did it. Have the t-shirt. Yeah. So when you see this Jesus resurrected, this is a dangerous, fearless man. Because the worst that could happen to a human being has happened to him, and he's alive. And he's giving thanks. And he's handing out bread. And he's inviting others to enjoy the bread. Which, remember, in Jewish life, to enjoy the bread is to acknowledge that all of life is a sacred, precious gift. This is why your friend who was diagnosed with cancer, and then the cancer went into remission, they didn't say, well, now I would like to make a lot of money and accumulate lots of material possessions. No. Your friend who got cancer and then the cancer went into remission, how did they act? I got my life back. And what did they talk about? Love, relationships, the sacred, precious gift that this life is. Your friend who was in a car accident and they somehow survived it. How did they respond? I'm here. We're we're alive. And you were sitting there, right? Wondering, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm, we are alive. Man, you understand, man, we're breathing. Yep. But why were they? Because... When you go through the worst that someone could go through and you survive, now you can really live. See, our problem is we live with all these fears and anxieties. For some of us, uh, anxiety, I-E-T-Y. Anybody have anxiety about their finances? Yeah. We have these terrors about how we're going to be perceived. We want to look good. How many people here want to look successful and want to appear successful? 
Yeah, the rest of you are lying. So apparently we have lying. Liars. Do you ever see somebody's Facebook page and something within you as you look through their posts says, this is a cry for help. This person desperately is presenting to me a particular curated image of who they wish they were. Is that you? Desperate to appear a particular way. We have these worries. Sometimes it's regret. Now think about regret. Regret is when a part of us is still stuck back there at the event. Worry and anxiety is when a part of us is playing through the possible scenarios that might unfold in the future. Regret is generally about the past. Worry and anxiety is generally about the future. But both of them are conditions in which our psyche, our soul, and our heart is not fully here in this moment. Does that make sense? It spreads us out and it puts us, we're stuck back there, we're way up ahead here, and the one thing we aren't is present in this moment. Yeah, sometimes we're just absolutely terrified that we might be misunderstood or criticized. I have a friend who's been criticized. Yeah. We're, we have this crippling terror that we might be misunderstood. We might set off on our path to do our work in the world, and some people might have a problem with it. They might accuse us. They might question our motivations. They might warn people with their Twitter followers, hundreds of thousands of them, about how we are the problem. And if we could just be stamped out or disavowed or shunned or denied, then things would be better. Yeah. We have these issues in which we wish somebody else would do what we want them to do. I mean, don't they understand that we love them and have a wonderful plan for their life? Why do they continue to just not do what we want them to do? What we want is control. Do any of you have somebody in your life who will not submit to you and do things according to your plan for them? Yes. And it drives us completely mad. Why won't you live according to my will? Yeah. And so we lose our joy. We're all locked up. Anxiety, worry, stress. All of it based out of fear. Fear. Because fear is what happens when there is no love. When you're not grounded in the fear. Fear of tomorrow. Fear that we're not good enough. Fear that we're not significant. Fear that we're not beautiful enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, successful enough, accomplished enough, that we don't have enough people. Oh my word, someone just Instagrammed. I'm not miss. I'm missing out. The social event that would be the greatest social event ever is happening. Someone just Instagrammed it and I'm not there. <gasps> Are you with me? What would happen if we were to take these fears, worries, anxieties, regrets, and show them to the resurrected Jesus. Anxiety. I have this terror that I might lose my job. 
I have this fear that I might end up living in a van down by the river. (laughs) I project this image of myself to the world. I'm desperate to appear a certain way. I have these worries that I won't be loved, that I won't be... Would Jesus say, wow, I can't imagine that. Or would Jesus say, yeah, yeah, you're right, that could happen. Would Jesus say, that's not a big deal. Or would he say, actually, that is a big deal, and that could happen. And you, you, you could lose your job. And somebody that you love could die. And you might get rejected. And you might miss that party. And you might fail. That might happen. That might happen. See, Jesus, he didn't come first and foremost to give you life after death. Jesus came to invite you to die now so that you could have life before death. There is a part of you, a false self, an inflated, bloated ego that wants to control, wants to manipulate, lives with ferocious fear. There is a part of each of us that clings like a death grip to life. Jesus comes to invite that part of us to die so that we could really live. You might lose your job and end up in a van down by the river. And if you can face that that might happen, now you're free. Because you're not living in fear. It might all fall apart. Can you face that? Because if you can, if you can die to the part of you that needs to be able to control the future, well, now you can really live. See, what religious institutions often did is institutionalized the resurrection and said, here's what you have to do. If you just believe in Jesus, then someday you'll die and go to some other place. Jesus comes to invite you to enter into the death and resurrection pattern right now so that you can live right now. This rabbi who sits resurrected at the table and breaks the bread, now you can really enjoy life. So when Jesus tells stories, what does he tell stories about? Well, he tells stories about a coin that's lost and it's found. Tells stories about a sheep that wanders away and it's brought back. Tells stories about a son who wanders away, a prodigal son, but then he returns home. He tells stories about things lost and found. He tells stories about things that let go but then came back. He says, if you lose your life, then you can actually find it. In the Gospel of John, he says, well, unless a seed falls to the ground and is buried... It can't rise. He talks about death and resurrection. He talks about letting go so that you can actually receive. He talks about losing so that you can actually find. A group of people come to him and say, show us a sign. Show us how awesome you are, my translation. And Jesus says, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. Well, what's the sign of Jonah? That's a story about a guy who gets swallowed by a fish for three days. And then gets vomited up on the beach. What does he say to them? You want me to participate in the giant bloating of the ego, in which we all walk around with swag, showing how great we are, clutching and clinging to our worries and anxieties and desperate need to show how great we are. Only sign you'll get from me is death. Death and then resurrection. See, that's the pattern he invites 
each of us into. The worst thing that you're terrified might actually happen might actually happen. He invites you to die to the part of you that is terrified of that so that you can really live. See, for many of us, we white-knuckle life. We have these things that we cling to. We're so terrified of where it's going to go and what's going to happen and how we're going to be perceived and who's going to think what about us. And so we grab hold and tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. Jesus does not come along and say, ah, forget about that. He says, yeah, it's true. Can you die to that? Because if you could die to that, you could really live. I want to show you a clip. It takes this image, puts it in slightly different language. It has a, this clip has a way of showing what this looks like. Let me roll it. I want to invite you to take your hands and place them on your lap with your palms up. And then I want you to take your hands and make a fist. We grip our life so tightly. We white-knuckle it. Our ego, our need for control, worry, stress, anxiety, a deep-seated need to manipulate others for our ends. Jesus invites you to trust him. And for thousands of years, people have experienced a particular kind of life when they trusted him. I don't know where you are with religion or with Christianity or with all the other religions. Or all the, my experience has been this resurrected Jesus can be trusted. People will burn you. Institutions can betray you. Systems can crush you. Some of your best friends may kiss you and you may say, are you betraying me with a kiss? These things can all happen. You might lose your job. Somebody you love may get sick and die. This all may happen. But real life, the kind of life that Jesus invites us into, the kind of life in which you become indestructible, is when you take everything that you are clinging so tightly to, including the lie that you can be good enough to earn God's love. Sometimes religion even becomes a giant case of bloated ego. You have 12 statements of faith, we have 13. We are more truer. We are more traditional. We are more contemporary. We are more progressive. We are more liberal. We are more old school. We are more new school. We are orthodoxer, if that's a word. We have stayed true to the path. Well, you have wandered. Sometimes even the Jesus message itself can become a giant way to prop up your belief that you're right and everybody else isn't. Jesus invites us to take everything that we are clinging so tightly to, the part of us that desperately fears and wants things to go a particular way, and die so that we can actually live. Is there anybody who has wronged you and you are clinging to you as the judge, and you can't wait to bring them revenge. So you die to that so that you can really live. 
Is there anything you are dragging around and you don't know what to do with it, but it is unreconciled and you have great terror that somehow God is going to pound you into the ground for it. And so what you need is to die to that so that you can trust that he has forgiven, that it is finished, that the price has been paid, that what you could never do on your own has been done for you. And all he invites you to do is trust that the good news is actually that good. Are you with me? Jesus comes to give you life before death. And he invites you into a pattern as old as the universe of death and resurrection. Dear God, we bring before you our lives. We bring before you our fears, our worries, our anxieties. We bring all of the ways in which we are white-knuckling our lives. And on this Resurrection Sunday, we open our hands. We die so that we can really live. Please show each of us what we ought to die to so that we can really live. We thank you for this Jesus who comes among us in flesh and blood, who moves into the neighborhood, who takes the worst the world could throw at a human being and survives it. God, I pray specifically for my brothers and sisters here today who are living with the sense that their fear, their failure, their sins are the last word. We ask you to speak a new word, a fresh word about whatever it is. We ask you to meet us in our death, in our pain, in our suffering, in our anguish, in all that doesn't make any sense. To meet us there in the death and give us, with our open palms, life. We thank you for this resurrected Jesus who is a dangerous, free man who invites us to live in such a way that the worst could happen to us and we would keep going. And in the strong name of this resurrected Christ, everybody said,